Welcome to this very first session in the book of John. Would you take your Bibles and would you turn to John chapter 1? This is an absolute mountain of a book. It's one with incredible depth. It's one which we will never, ever begin to even scratch the surface of. But our dream is that every single person in this church over the course of this series falls more and more in love with this book. But more importantly than that, the most practical thing that you can do in your life is to deepen your surrender to and your love for Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why we're going to dive into this gospel, this book, this summary that John gives us of Jesus' life over the next few months is this. The more intentional we become as a church about reaching into our communities across multiple sites, and the deeper we devote ourselves to expressing the works and the words of Jesus Christ and the gospel in Wellington and beyond, and the greater the way that we want to bless the wider church and do all of these things, there is a risk that we have as we devote ourselves to those things. And the risk is that we lose sight of Jesus. You see, I see way too many people substitute the institution of the church or even the mission and ministry of churches for the person of Jesus Christ. Others endeavor to construct systems of belief and information around God, seeking to understand him so that they can defend him. Others come to church on the basis of an invitation that Christianity and the church will improve your life. That wonderful statement, come to Jesus and your finances and your relationships and your community will be sorted and you'll find meaning and fulfillment and purpose in life. And all these things, they're good in and of themselves. However, they are no substitute for a lifelong surrender to and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Without which people who have been strong in their faith for many years often drift away. I say that because I was chatting with my father-in-law just this last week. And he said, do you realize that in my kind of peer group, so many people who used to do great things for God are nowhere in their faith. And you've got to ask a question, and this is really the the premise of why we're diving into this book. It's not about what you do. It's not about the mission you go on. It's not about the ministry you do. It's not even about the faith you defend. It's about your surrender to and your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to explore the wonder of him. And my prayer is that every week, Our hearts will pulsate with that wonder. And our minds will in some way be blown by the glory of who he is. And to respond to that, we're going to give ourselves time at the end of each message over this first three weeks. And we'll respond in worship, which ultimately is the most fitting response that we could have. I'll say the most practical thing you can do in life is to deepen your surrender to and your love for Jesus Christ. 
Through the pages of John's Gospel, we will meet Jesus and will come to understand him more and more. We've entitled this series, I Am. Well, the reason for that is if you go into the Old Testament and there are times when God would show up in the, in the nation's life or a person's life. Take Moses, for instance, and Moses would ask God, who are you? And God would simply say, I am. And you can imagine Moses and others going, I am who? They say, no, no, I am. You see, that statement in and of itself is a statement of completion. It's a statement of completeness. It's a statement of unchangeable, inexhaustible power that his people could lean into, could trust in, could believe in. I am sent me. And now as John tells the story of Jesus in this gospel, it is punctuated with I am statements. And Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. It's as though Jesus goes to those who are leaning forward saying, I am who? And he says, let me tell you. In fact, more than that, let me show you who I am. He's revealing God so that we can believe in him. That's the whole point of this book. John summarizes it at the end in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, Jesus performs many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And by that, he's talking his letter, the gospel of John. He only records seven miracles of Jesus. It's the, if you want all of the stories around Jesus, this isn't the book to go to. But if you want to plumb the depths of the glory of who Jesus is, there is no other book to go to. And so he, he expands on and expounds and helps us to understand these incredible things that he did. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of John is that people might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God initially, and then provoke you into believing continually, and then to believe even more, so that you will experience life, the abundant life that you have been created for. The call of John is to put the full weight of your life onto Jesus Christ, because the more you get to know him, the more trustworthy his character seems. Can I encourage you, as we get into this series, take John's gospel, sit down and read it. Just start in chapter 1 and finish in chapter 21. And do that as many times as you could. If you do it once, that's fine. If you can do it 10 times, that's great. It is just so beautifully rich. And each time, pray that God would reveal something more of the Lord Jesus Christ to you. So with that in mind, why don't we start right now? Would you stand with me? Let's read. The first 18 verses of John's gospel, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, 
and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Father, would you show us something of Jesus this morning? Would you show us something of his glory and his power? We ask this in your name. Amen. In the beginning was the word. The word used for word is the word logos. And if you were around in that day, if TED Talks were around in that day, one of the repeated TED Talk themes that you would hear would be a talk on the logos. It was a really popular topic back then. And when John says, in the beginning was the Logos, there would be a whole group of different people who would lean forward and would say, what's he going to say? The Jewish Old Testament followers of God would lean into that. Because, you see, the word of the Lord was the basis of their faith. God's commands, his promises, his wisdom and warnings were all delivered by the word. They believed in God who speaks the Logos. But the Greeks, who loved their philosophical discussions, also were interested in the Logos. But their view of the Logos was entirely different. According to Plato, the Logos is the ideal or the thought behind everything on earth. In fact, everything we see in the entire cosmos is merely a shadow of some indefinable reality that is ordered by a basic defining principle or thought, the Logos. Then you've got the Hellenistic Jews. And they were aware of this Greek concept of the Logos, and they said, well, let's think about this. Behind every thought, there has to be a thinker. And so they would say, we don't know who or what 
this Logos is, but if there is a thought that somehow defines reality, even though we're not sure what that is, there must be a thinker behind it somewhere we're interested. And John walks onto the stage and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to the Logos. And he calls from the mountaintop of theological and philosophical thought. The word, the Logos, he says, it has no origin. In the beginning, he always was. Before time and space were created, he is. You can't go back any further than him because he's not part of creation. He's not a part even of matter. The Logos, John says, he is fully God. Yet he's a distinct part of God. And John confronts us first up with that mind-stretching reality of the Trinity, of the Godhead, three in one, Father, Son, Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it? There is another verse in the Bible which is incredibly similar to John chapter 1, verse 1. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And just as this first few verses of John introduces us to the Trinity, so do the first few verses of the Bible. Sometimes people will say, ah, the Trinity is just some kind of theological construct that some enthusiastic people have made up. No, 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 it's right there at the beginning. In the beginning, God... God the Father, created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty in the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is right there. And then God said, God spoke, the Word of God, the Logos of God, right there in the beginning. Paul describes Jesus this way in Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. And by the way, that doesn't mean, oh, so he was born, so he's created. No, firstborn is a title of authority. Firstborn means he has rights to all things. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. And for him, see what Paul is saying, which is what John is saying, which is what Genesis is saying is this. Jesus Christ is first. He is number one. There is no other. There is no other number one in our life. There is no other number one in our world. There is no other number one in our universe. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Do you realize that you were made by him and for him? And Psalm 139 says, he knit you together in your mother's womb. And you might be sitting here this morning saying, but I'm just some, some kind of accident. No, you're not. You are preciously knit together in your mother's womb. And here is the divine invitation. Life holds together. When you give your life to him. In him all things 
hold together. We could explore the cosmic reality of that, that he holds all matter together by the word of his power. But right now, I want you just to think of it in this way. He holds your life together. If you're in him, he is the one who is holding it together. Is your life falling apart? Are you in him? In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's the logic of what he's saying in verses 4 and 5. It's, it's very simple in some ways. Look at it on the bullet points here. The Word is the Creator. The Creator creates life. Life is the light And by light, he means this. Light is the source of energy and power for all people. And that light defeats darkness, so you can see. So we think of it this way. The word created life, and that life is the energy and power for all people, and it defeats darkness. And we have this wonderful statement here. But now, back in the day, and in fact in ours, There is this widely held view that light and darkness are equal opposing forces. You know, the battle between good and evil. You know, you you see it in in ancient mythological gods. You see it even with Star Wars, right? You know, the good and evil fighting. And, and, you know, there's all that kind of stuff going on. We see it in spiritual practices of, of the day. Things even like yoga with its links to Eastern spirituality that seeks to balance light and dark and treating them as two realities to have as balance in your life. But John comes with this powerful statement. He says, no, no, no. In him was life. And that life is the energy and power to truly live for all who believe. All else is darkness. And yes, that's an absolute statement. He invites us to consider that. You know, some people say, oh, well, I'll kind of take a mismatch from all sorts of kind of thoughts and views and philosophies and belief. And as long as Jesus is somewhere in the mix, it'll be okay. And then he says, in me is light, all else is darkness. Are you compromising? Is there practices, are there things going on in your life where you're adding other stuff to Jesus? At best, there's no need for that. God is inviting us to live with all his energy and power, and to overcome all darkness, all evil, all sin in our life. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And by the way, in verse 6, the John that he's talking about is not the John who's writing this. There's two Johns in this little passage. The first one is John the Apostle who writes us this letter. This John here in verse 6 is John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist has been sent from God and he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. John the Baptist shared of what Jesus was doing in his life. He shared out of the light that he had been given. And you know what? I love verse 7. It strikes me that in that verse there that God would like all to believe. Do you ask the power of that? You know, do we have, we, we sometimes wonder, gosh, you know, could that person be saved? God's heart is that all might believe. And Peter, God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. All, I guess, means all. So what are we to do with that? Well, we as a church, as you know, are on mission, person by person. 
Suburb by suburb. Community by community. We're reaching out into the Wellington region and beyond. And we, we have this base here. We, we, we know that as a church, that it's not about telling people you need to come to us. We will go wherever we need to. And we're starting next year. In fact, Simon and Jenny are already on the move with this in terms of putting a, a, a site in Miramar. because we think that people over there need an easier way to come into the orbit of a church where they can meet Jesus Christ. And you know what's wonderful is as we've launched that, some people have come up to me and said, man, that's great. Well, what about my area? You know what I say? Bring it on. <laughs> the dream is not just Miramar. The dream is is, is in as many places as we need to, to reach as many people as we can with the message of Jesus Christ so that all might believe. You know what? Sometimes people say, but you have no idea how dark it is in my neighborhood. You have no idea how dark it is in my place of work. You know, it's just like, it doesn't matter what I do. This light that you're talking about just doesn't seem to make a difference. Let me just do a little experiment here. I think it does make a difference. Can we pull the lights down? Okay. Who's on your phone? Okay. We're now in darkness. Agree? So this is darkness. Now the thing is, we then go along and we say, you know what, I just don't know if my light, if me living for Jesus would make a difference. You know what one light does? That makes a bit of a difference. What would happen if there were more people in your area doing that? Let's say you get your phones and find the torch or something on it and just start turning it on and just start shining it up. As you do that, what starts to happen to the community. What starts to happen to the area? You see, we so often get caught, let's, let's pull some lights back up, we so often get caught in the mindset that what I do doesn't make a difference. If your comment, if your question, if your act of kindness, if your sense of bringing Jesus into a situation is just that one little light and that's then added to the person around you and the other person around you, see what happens with just a few lights in a room like this. And that's exactly what you and I are called to do in our communities. We are to push back the darkness. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, verse 9. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The word world that John uses here has two nuances. The first one is world as in the entire created universe. The second one that is used is when he talks about world, he's talking about the people within the created universe. Now, John mostly lands on the people one. But here he uses both. And this is effectively what he's saying in verse 9 and 10. He's saying the word came into his creation. And the creation submitted to him. But his people did not receive him. And there is one of the greatest tragedies humanity has ever known. That the Creator walks into their life and they say no. What does that mean? What does the word receive? We've got here, and if you've got the NIV like me, you've got the word 
did not recognize him. Well, that's an okay word. Some translations have the word did not receive him. That's an okay word. There's a better word, which is did not know him. And that word is has its origins back in the Old Testament, and we see it used in in a verse in Genesis, which is Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where in the ESV version it says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now track with me here for a minute. The latest NIV version, I think, does this as a service. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and they gave birth to a son. And it just kind of relegates it to biology. And particularly in our day and age where, where sexuality and sexual intimacy has been so destroyed by pornography and just by a society that is completely out of control. We have no idea about the incredible power of this statement. Let me explain it to you as, as simply and as best I can. To know someone, for a husband to know his wife, is way more than intellectual knowledge. Well, we get that when we read that in the context. And it's more than understanding. It's a description of the most complete expression of oneness possible. It is a description of a oneness of vulnerability, of intimacy, and of joy, and of life, and of adoration, and of worship. And what... John is saying here, is he is saying that when people come to know God, the most incredible, intimate relationships we see here on earth between a husband and a wife, with all of the glory that that can be, is merely a hint of what knowing God is truly like. And John says... Jesus walked into your life for you to know him. But humanity said, we reject you. You know, I want to suggest to you that a good indicator of the life you have in Jesus Christ is the depth to which you worship him. To discover the vulnerability, the intimacy, and the joy of worship. When Jesus walked into his creation, creation received him. The winds and the waves submitted to him. The heavens declared his glory and the rocks are on standby that if humanity doesn't cry out, they will. But here's the strangest thing. Often people won't. You know, people say, I find this in my own life. I'll sometimes say, well, I don't want to lift my voice. I don't want to raise my hands. I don't want to stand on my feet. I don't want to bow my knee. There's this crazy thing that goes on in our minds. You're created to worship. It's one of the most intimate things that we can do. It's one of the most powerful things we can do is to worship him, to give ourselves totally to him. In the same way, it says as a husband will give himself to her wife or wife to her husband, but then blow that completely outside of the park of just in the bedroom to, a, to an amazing reality of spiritual intimacy with God. And yet we so often stand there in various poses of, you know, say, but 
I'm not made that way. I don't do that. You know what? We are, as a church, utterly committed to allowing people, not allowing, that's the wrong word, to welcoming people as they are. But the great thing about it is this. God doesn't want to leave you that way. He wants to transform you. And you see, there is, there is no way that in any aspect of our life, I am a finished product. Ask Sarah. She knows that. And it's the same for all of us. And in our expression of worship and our expression of evangelism and our expression of, of commitment and dedication, we haven't arrived. When was the last time you challenged yourself to express your love for him in a deeper and a more powerful way? Or you're hiding behind the, ah, that's not me, I don't do that. God didn't save you to keep you the way you are. He saved you to transform you into a passionate worshiper which is an expression of the reality that you know Jesus Christ. Because listen carefully, the more you know him, the less able you are to resist worshipping him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision, nor of a human decision of a husband's will, but born of God. The Logos, the word, gives the power, that is the legal right to become children, or in the older version it says sons, which is actually technically a better word because it's talking the idea of inheritance. It's talking the legal term of saying we are rightful inheritors of all of the life that God has for us. So what does it actually mean to believe? Well, some might suggest that Christian belief is the intellectual, intellectual acceptance of a series of facts and that on the weight of evidence, it makes sense. So a person will therefore say, because A equals B, I can work out that that makes C. Therefore, logically, I will choose to believe. Some would say that Christian belief is more subjective. Perhaps an experience occurred that stirred the emotions and it resulted in someone saying, well, because of that, I believe. Some would rely on their intuition or on history or even on the collective momentum of groups of people that they mix with and they would simply state that they know and therefore they believe as part of an entire group. John, in these words, helps us uncover what it really means to believe. He calls out to say that we don't believe based on history. We don't believe based on the faith of our parents. We don't believe because of what others believe. We don't even believe because of our ability to work out who God is. The core of the gospel is not so much focused on what you know or what you believe. It is focused on who you know and who you believe. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you met him? You see, in meeting him, you are growing and you're receiving of him, knowing of him, learning who he is, discovering new things about him so that your experience and appreciation of his character and truth is ever expanding and therefore ever deepening. And so John declares the Logos to all to make sure we understand who he is talking about. He says, the word, the Logos, became flesh. <laughs> and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. 
The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. He made his dwelling. The word there is literally he tabernacled. I say, well, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel were rescued out of Egypt and they wandered around in the desert for 40 some years, God said, I want you to build a tent, a place where I can meet with you. And I want you to carry that tent. It's going to be called a tabernacle. I want you to build it in a certain way and I want you to carry it around. And wherever you stop, I want you to put it up right in the center of the nation. And it's right there and all the tribes can gather out around it. But in the center is going to be the tabernacle. And this tabernacle is the place of worship. It's the place of community. It is the place of God's presence. It is the place of guidance and direction. It is the place of identity and reputation. And the nations around them knew that their God was with them because the tabernacle had a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that came up out of it. And people would look and they would say, we know their God is real. We know their God is alive because we can see his footprints in their life. And Jesus Christ came in the flesh and pitched his tent in your life. In his presence is the place of worship and of community, of guidance and direction, of identity and reputation. Because as you walk with him and people look at you, they see his glory, his character displayed through you. The Logos, the creator, the sustainer, the life and the light of the world has come. And this glory is the manifestation of God's presence and power. And the character and the quality of God is revealed through his works and his words. Are there so that we might know him? John, in the end of this passage, which, to be honest... I've lifted the bonnet and I've hardly even scratched the surface. We could spend a year on these words. No one has ever seen God. Invisible, immortal, the God only wise. But the one and only Son who is himself God, Trinity, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Do you want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Do you want to understand who God is? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how trustworthy the character of God is so that you can believe, so that you can put the full weight of your life onto God? Look at Jesus. He is God. And we worship him. And we serve him. And we come back to that one life-changing thought that the most practical thing we can do in our lives is to deepen our surrender to and our love for Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me?
In a moment, we're going to worship. And we're going to, to sing a, a, an incredible song of the, about the name of Jesus Christ. It's one we know, it's one we've sung about. And then we're going to share communion together. And before we, before we share communion after the song, I'm going to give you an opportunity just to declare his praise. And for you, that might be as simple as saying, just simply saying, Jesus, I want to declare you are God. You are light. Might be you just want to shout out, thank you, Lord, you love me. I just want to give people an opportunity to, to declare him as an act of extravagant worship. And you might say, I don't do that. Well, remember, God's in the process of transforming. Maybe today is the day you do. But before we do anything, the question is, have you met him? You may have listened to all that's been said this morning and just gone, oh my goodness, I've realized that I don't have a faith of my own. I'm just simply listening to mum and dad and I need to believe in Jesus for myself. You may have been to church for years and all of a sudden the Spirit of God is just simply saying, you know, I've just realized that I've put all of my eggs in the basket of church attendance. No wonder it feels so frustrating. I don't know what it means to actually receive and believe in him and put the weight of my life on him. Maybe, maybe you've even studied God. You've read theological books that are thicker than a doorstop. And you think you've worked God out and you've, and you've got a, a, a kind of an intellectual mental ascent to say, yeah, I think I understand who this God is. And you've actually believed him. Never actually come to a moment of saying, I know you, I believe in you. If that's you and you would like to surrender your life to him for the first time or maybe just with a freshness, would you just follow me as I give you some words to say? Lord Jesus, I thank you, you are God. I thank you, you show us who God is. Lord Jesus, right now, I declare I believe in you. I put the full weight of my life into your hands. I turn from living the way I have, and I turn to you. I receive you into my life as my Savior and my Lord. I trust you. I thank you for the life you've given me and the forgiveness that is mine in your name. I pray these things for your glory. Amen. Would you stand with me? If you called out to the Lord just then, I'd love to chat with you at the end of the service. We've got the a pack we'd love to give you to help you grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. But right now, let's worship. And for you, maybe there is an expression of worship like never before. I encourage you, enter into the vulnerability and the intimacy of worshiping the one who loves you so deeply. Let's worship.